Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So throughout Lent, our theme is the arrival of the Messiah, and we have been exploring the messianic titles, the titles for Jesus Christ, that are all throughout the scriptures. Mostly we've been in the gospel accounts, but today we're moving to what's called the pastorals. First and second Timothy and Titus are considered pastorals. Now, historically and traditionally, they were attributed to the Apostle Paul, but through some contextual criticism, it's possible and probably even likely that Paul didn't write them. There's a very expanded vocabulary and a greatly evolved theology at work in Timothy and Titus that we don't find in the other epistles that are authenticated as Paul's. But that doesn't mean that they aren't important. It also doesn't mean that they weren't lessons that were built upon throughout the community and throughout the years by the apostles' teaching embodied in the disciples who followed after Paul. Timothy and Titus were co-workers in Christ with Paul. Oftentimes, as he traveled around from community to community, not only planting churches, but helping communities to grow in their faith life, Paul would work with others so that he would be more fruitful and it would multiply their effectiveness in ministry. And so in Titus, we see that the author is encouraging us to have a clear sense of who we are by virtue of what God has done for us. So today, our messianic title is Savior. We've explored Son of God, Son of Man, Lamb of God, but today we're going to explore Savior. Now, Savior is sometimes very simple for Christians. We believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. However, I will tell you that sometimes it gets really hard when you turn to somebody and say, so what does that mean? And then they go, you know. Well, of course I know, but do you know? (laughs) Do you know? To have a savior, there must be something from which we are being saved. So what is it that God is seeking to save us from by providing a Lord and Savior? What is it that God is saving us from is the question, right? And the question is answered in this, ourselves. God is saving us from ourselves. And that's because every single human being has been given the incredible gift of free will. We are able to make decisions for ourselves. We can say things and have actions that are purely our own. But as we are introduced to the love and grace of Jesus Christ, we are invited instead to make God's will our own. And God's will is for peace and love, community, the building up of the things that are good and right and joyful, the tearing down of the things that humanity has built that separate and cause pain and suffering, the sin that we give rise to in the world that then brings forth evil. Those are the things that God seeks for us to dismantle while allowing us to build a new kingdom in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the the words that were professed in Titus are especially apparent in this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. 
Now, this might not seem such a radical thing to people who have lived in a post-John 3.16 world, where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life. But for a people who didn't yet have a bound canon, to hear that God was bringing salvation to all was a little radical, and for some, a little disturbing. Why would it disturb people to think that God wants to love every single person? Well, that's disturbing on one hand because we have trouble loving every single person. <laughs> and so how could God love people that we don't love? But even deeper than that, the people of Israel who became Jews after the Babylonian exile, who were the community into which Jesus was born and through which Jesus rose to adulthood and then ministered in for a vast majority of his earthly ministry, those people thought that they were special. They thought more than any other people in the entire earth, they were God's people. Now, they have scriptural basis for this when they came out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt after 400 years and God brought them to Mount Sinai and descended upon the mountain and said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. The people agreed to this. And it sounded like that they would be God's special people. There's other people, but we're God's people. That's how they understood their identity. And that's what made them special in a world that didn't appreciate the peculiarity of their dietary habits, their clothing restrictions, their bizarre refusal not to work from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, these quirky things about God's people that the rest of the world just couldn't quite understand, they were still special because God said so. So to suddenly hear, maybe we're not so special and everybody's in, was disturbing. But God was trying to say to them, I have loved you even when you were stiff-necked and hardened in your heart. I have loved you when you were drawing close to me, and I have loved you when you withdrew. I have loved you through periods of good and feast, and I have loved you through periods of hardship and famine. My love has been constant even when yours was not. But that is such a gift unmerited favor, the very definition of grace, that God says, I need to share that with the world. Now, hearing that God is giving you all those things is one thing, but to hear that God is giving it to just anybody was another. But then you have those moments where you can appreciate that. For instance, today we applied the waters of baptism to Thomas Jr. and to Charlotte, and nobody raised any issue with that yet. No one's had any problems with that. In fact, most of you seem to be rather excited that we would pour out the waters of baptism and lay hands and, and call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit upon those two children because they are some amazingly well-behaved and good-looking children, right? And they will stay that way because I have a feeling that they have a nice family that is continuing to uphold good standards for them and teach them and grant them forgiveness that they might continue to grow in their behavior and in their ability to be servants of Jesus Christ. But one day, they're going to be adults, just like you and me. They're going to be adults, and they might say and do things that adults do, which some other adults don't agree with. But that doesn't mean that the promise of salvation that they receive today is nullified just because they make another adult angry, hurt, 
upset, sad. They are God's gift to this world now. They have been given access to God's provenient grace, the grace that came well before their birth, well before their first sin. I'm not even sure Clark sins. He's been such a sweet kid every time I see him. But give him time, teenage years are coming. And that's a whole other thing. But the good news is that no matter what they do or don't do in their lives, Clark and Charlotte have God's grace. They have God's love. They have forgiveness for what they will do the first time they realize that they have upset not just their parents, but God. God will forgive them just like their parents will forgive them because of that love in which they were created and nurtured and brought forth into this world. But every single one of us is loved like that by God. Every single one. And not just those who are here, not just those who are watching online or archived, not just those that will be watching later on at the lodge and old trail, but every single person, the person that cuts you off in traffic, the person that is so rude out in public that you just wonder if God's going to bring back smiting. Right? The person that breaks your heart, the person that you see stealing, the person that you just have that instantaneous dislike for that you like to call your good sense about people. Those people. How can God love those people? We can't even love those people. How is God going to do it? God's going to do it because God has loved us when we were unlovable. Amen. Not just when we were good and when we were adorable children. God has loved us through every moment, our teenage years and beyond. God has loved us. God will love us every single day. And so a Savior becomes important because we will sin away our baptism. I mean, one day Charlotte's going to do something. But God's grace is not going to depart from her because God will now be with her every single day from this day forward. And she will never be able to outrun God. I've tried, Charlotte. Save yourself the trouble. You can't do it. But no matter where she goes, what she does, what she says, or many mistakes or triumphs that she has in her life, God is going to be with Charlotte for all the good and the bad. God will be there. And God will be there for Clark, for everything that he experiences. And that is what we want for children. That's something that the church embraces for children. But do we do it for, you know, 50-year-old children of God? Do we look for that same grace in 88-year-old children of God? We should. We should look at someone who is driving us absolutely crazy and try to envision their baptism. Now, for some of us, we come from a tradition where we were baptized older, maybe around teenage years. And for some of us who grew up in traditions that practice baptizing of children and infants, then maybe it was much younger for us. But here's the good news. It doesn't matter when or if you were baptized, God still loves you. God will still forgive you. God will pour out God's self for you on the cross, as God has already done. And our Savior is here to ensure that there is nothing that you can do to preclude you from that grace. And Jesus went to the ends of the earth to make sure 
that nothing would stand between us and that grace. Now, when I was working a summer camp one year, I remember we were going over first aid, which has been useful at some times in my life. We were going over first aid, and I remember because we were out there with canoes, you know, doing things on the water that my skin totally rejects. We were out there on the water, and they said, if somebody falls into the water and can't swim, you may have to help them. Okay. Well, and if you jump in to help them, they may try to drown you. Wait, what? Why would you try to destroy somebody who's trying to help you? What? Why would you do that? Why would you try to destroy somebody who's trying to help you? Because we're not perfect and we sin. That's why. Because we want our way. Think about what you might do if there were no ramifications or repercussions, if everything was suddenly permissible, not only in law, but by God, what would you do? Money's not a factor. You could do just about anything to anyone. What would you do? That's your will. And people start to perk up and think about, ooh, what could I do? What would I do? The difference for the one who has experienced God's grace is that God is saying, I need you to focus more on what you're supposed to be doing. I didn't create you and redeem you and now sustain you through your life that you might enact a will that will bring forth sin. I didn't do that for you. And if you grew up watching, sometimes it was really big on Looney Tunes or sometimes it was in other depictions of the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. Remember those depictions? I actually looked to see how far back that goes. And it goes back at least to the 15th century there was a book that was put out by Augustine, and in it, St. Augustine puts out a book, and there's a picture, a portrait of him, and they're not exactly on his shoulder because they are life-size, but there's an angel and a devil right by his shoulders, seemingly informing him, like, hey, you could go this way. No, 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 you should go this way, trying to help him make his decision. And I think a lot of us have had an internal monologue like that. I mean, if you stand here and you start talking to one shoulder or the other, most of the time we're going to wonder if you're okay. But we do this, right? We think about it sometimes, but most of the time for people who recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ, it's those impulsive sins, right? It's the ones that creep up on us because we're angry. It's the ones that come upon us because we're hurt and we're sad and we just need to make someone else feel that way. It's not because we wake up in the morning and we're like, let's see how I can sin today. That's not how we work. But we sin, so what do we do about that? Now, there have been other traditions, especially in the Abrahamic tradition, that, that have kind of taken on that idea. In fact, there are some scholars who believe that Augustine got that idea or, or the um, depiction of that idea that was in the book in the 15th century actually came out of Islam, which has been around since the 5th century. They're really big on the spirits. And so it's quite possible that there was some intermingling of two of the sibling faiths of Abraham between Christianity and Islam that helped to perpetuate that. Didn't know that you were watching ecumenical world religions when you were watching Bugs Bunny, did you? <laughs> but yes, because something resonates with us about the choice. And if you had a moment where you were going to sin, the impulsive sin, right? If you could have a moment where God is there going, don't do this, 
this is a bad idea. And you're like, well, it, maybe it's, you know, it's not the worst idea. No, I'm sure it's one of the big 10. Not a good idea. And God's like, please take a moment. Don't do this. Don't do this. And you're like, oh, but right now is the moment. And God says, please don't do this. Don't do this. But then your will gets the better of you. And suddenly you've sinned. And then God's up there going, oh, gosh. Okay. Good thing we can fix this. We can fix this. We can preemptively fix it through the waters of baptism. We can consistently fix this with the forgiveness, the pardon, and the confession that is a part of the sacrament of Holy Communion. We can fix this through my grace that was not only here before the day you needed it, but is here now for this day that you need it and will be available to you for every day that you live. Because the Savior is not just here to save us when we need it. It's not like Jesus is just on call waiting like the fire department. Like, is there a fire? That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is with us in surprising ways throughout each day. And Jesus is trying to let us know, don't just call me when you have an emergency and you need a Savior. Because a good Savior is right there when you need them. Right there when you need one. And last week we had experience where even though not that much time had passed, it felt like eons had passed for some of us as we waited to hear the siren. And as we waited, we're like, where are they? They were on their way. But even as we waited for the medical team, Jesus was here. Right here with us as we prayed, right here with us as we were present with and for our sibling in Christ, with us and him as he journeyed to the hospital, with him through all his testing and his treatment, with him through his recuperation. Christ was with him. And while none of that had anything to do with sin, it was a reminder that a good Savior doesn't just come when you call. A good Savior is there even before you need to call. And that's what Jesus is for us, the one who's there. I remember when there used to be this discussion in early childhood education, I've been around preschools for a long time, with the advent of the helicopter parent. You heard of that one? The parent that's like always there, like always there, physically, emotionally, spiritually, always there, always there. And some people were like, the kid needs to breathe. And it's like, well, you know, there's, there's two sides to every story. And some parents, they just feel that they need to be very present and very effective. And that's how they feel. And others are like, you know, we're going to do a little bit more of like distancing and kind of letting them find their way. And I'm here if they need me. Only God can be both. God is both the parent that says, you have free will. You can go out and make decisions. And if you make the bad ones, we will be talking about it. But God is also the one that's there with you when you're trying to make the right decision, when you're trying not to make the right decision. God is there with you, and God doesn't abandon you. Just like God will never abandon Clark and Charlotte. And you were here. You were here for the day when the world got to see the declaration that God is going to be with them for the rest of their lives. The same God that knew them and you in the womb, the same God that has known you from before your first breath, the same God that was with you the first time you figured out you could manifest your own will, and the same God that was with you the last time you realized you did it and you were wrong. Amen. 
that God is with them and is with you. And the harder part for us as we mature in years and in faith is to look at other people and go, that same God that is with those two amazing children is with this person, this person, the one that I wish God would strike with lightning right now, that person, God is with that person. And that's hard, it's hard to have that moment, to pause and go, even though I would strike you with lightning, God loves you. And God loves you, and so I need to try harder to love you. And you try harder. Because you'll notice that we didn't have any kind of quiz for the kids today. Right, Clark, did you eat all of your food last night? You know, Charlotte, have you been learning how to control yourself and sleep through the night? Those are not part of the questions for them. In fact, they didn't even have to answer questions. They received the cleansing waters of baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit simply because God wanted them to have it. And that's what a Savior does, is to give us those things. And why? Well, Titus tells us exactly why. That we can live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. Now, a lot of Christians are good with upright. That means that you've been uh, justified that you can stand up, that you don't have to be like cowered over in guilt in your sin, that you can do that. That's usually great with people. Godly, meaning being made holy, or in the Methodist Wesleyan tradition, being sanctified, that Holy Spirit that's working within to help you find more self-control. It's the self-control that's the hard part, right? It's the self-control that's hard. And sometimes people are like, you know what, that's just me, love it or leave it. But that's not what God says. God says, I love it, and you need to leave it there. I love you, but you got to leave this behind because you're hurting yourself. You're hurting other people, and you're hurting me. And all of that is polluting the world relationally. And we have to stop that. We have to find a way to embrace the salvation that you've seen. Embrace it, because this dries, right? The water dries. They're probably already dry. But that power of the Holy Spirit will never go out. And it will give you fire, and it will give you intensity when you feel you have nothing left. That's when we really need to rely on our Savior. Save me from doing something that I know will be wrong. Save me from my inclination to say and do things that will cause pain. Save me, Lord, before I actually need to be saved. Help me to recognize, to learn, to grow, to be strong in your spirit that I might not continue to sin in the same ways over and over again. You know when you start to try to manifest your will? I often saw it in my childhood growing up when you wanted to decide what you were going to eat. Now when I grew up, my parents used to make us eat one spoonful of everything that was on the table. Did you all grow up like that? You had to eat a little bit of everything, right? Well, that's fine until there's something on the table you don't like. And so, sure enough, they would put a spoonful of it on, and a serving spoonful, not like a teaspoon, like a serving spoonful, on the plate. And then you would have to decide whose will will win. Will it be yours or theirs? And my parents had a few decades of will against me. And so I can remember the first time that you're eating collard greens that have congealed and 
coagulated and gotten cold, and nobody should ever have to eat that. Eat it while it's hot. Then my sister came along, and my sister was gutsier than I was. She was like, I'm not eating it. I will outlast them. And I was like, I'm 10 years older. I've seen this. Go ahead. And I'll give her, I'll give her credit. One night, she wouldn't eat it, and she sat there until bedtime. And you kept walking by the dining room table like, oh, she's still there. Okay. And then she went to bed, and she thought she had won. And then she got up the next morning, and my mom pulled that plate out of the fridge. <laughs> and even I was having anxiety, and it wasn't even my breakfast. <laughs> and I can remember, my mom's like, do you want me to heat it up? No, she didn't, because she thought her will would win. She thought her will would win. But what she didn't realize is that my parents were trying to teach us to widen our palate. My parents were trying to teach us to eat things that we didn't actually like, because sometimes they're good for us. My parents were trying to equip us to actually grow up to be adults that can eat what we need instead of having to constantly take pills and supplements because we won't eat what we should eat. My parents knew that their will was actually good for us. But when you're in the moment, all you can think of is, my parents are Nazis. <laughs> right? That's all you can think of. Why would you make me eat this? Just because you have some kind of deficiency that likes eating this doesn't mean that I do. But God knows better. God knows that the very same things that we rebel against, like, no, 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 that may be for some Christians, but that's not for me. Or you know what? Some people who read the Bible, they can abide by that, but you know, I'm just a free spirit. God goes, no, you need a spirit that is upright and controlled and godly. You need a spirit that manifests the image in which you were created, not into the image that you are creating for yourself. And then finally, Titus leaves us with this. It is he who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Purifying a people is not easy. Purifying a people who then take the spirit that has been given to them, the spirit of godliness, and then being zealous for good deeds is even more difficult. Zealotry was a word that was thrown out a lot in these days. The Apostle Paul says for himself, I was zealous as a Pharisee. You have Simon the Zealot, who was one of the apostles. People who are overly into something, right? We all have those friends where you're like, they are just like really weirdly into this. God wants you to be really weirdly into good acts. So weirdly into it that people would say, why would you help those people? Why would you help those people? And somewhere within you lights that little spark of the Holy Spirit that goes, because those are my people. That's the difference that we are supposed to get to the point where it's not what people are saying or doing, and it's not what they're projecting at us. We are looking deeper in to the image in which they were created, the same image in which we were created, in the image in which they were redeemed, and the Holy Spirit that says, I can purify these people. 
Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that you are going to purify those people. That's God's work. God will purify the people. Our job is to become zealous for good deeds. And when people get a lot of good deeds that come their way, suddenly they start to feel this, why are they doing this for me? Why? When I seem to have done everything to make them not want to do it. Why are they trying so hard? And we're not trying so hard because we're martyrs or we're perfect. We're trying so hard because every one of us will be able to look back at today and remember the day that God poured out God's self for two children who are gonna grow up in this world and they're gonna carry that grace with them and put it to work through them that one day there will be less people that we have to worry about whether or not they are going to be zealous for good deeds. That is what we are called to do. That is what Christ has saved us for, to be the people that recognize that we are called and empowered to be a zealous people, zealous for good deeds. For have we not received the greatest of all deeds? May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.